book of 1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And although the letter is intended for his ministry life, the content transcends and applies to the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the church's culture is of spiritual significance. From the qualifications of elders and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be purer, her people bolder, and the gospel clearer. The book of 1 Timothy. Dear church, this is your charge. All right, so this entire message is going to be built upon the premise of what it looks like to wage war within a world at war. Let me say that again. The Christian is called and charged to wage war in a world at war. And as we're watching current events unfold, this war is not just physical. This war is not just ideological. It's not just cultural. This war is not just religious. It's not just a clash of nations, a clash of governments. It is ultimately funneled down the word of God to the faith. It is a clash between good and evil. It's all right, this happens. Okay. If that happened anywhere else, that would be considered assault, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> So I want the Word of God to help us discern the war that we are in. It really is, and at least the book of Daniel helps us see the war behind the veil. And the war behind the veil gives us a picture of angels and demons. Demons that are fallen angels, spearheaded by the general, the prince of darkness, Lucifer himself. God, of course, bringing forth the kingdom of light through his son, Jesus Christ. He waged war against sin and death, and he won. And I think that's where we begin this morning. The war that was waged was won by the Son of God. I guess that's the newsflash that you won't see on media outlets. The Lord Most High has already won the war. So what's left? I'll tell you. A battle still raging, still being waged for the souls of men. Now, if the war was won, how come there are still battles? It's very common, actually. And one of the most outrageous examples of battles still being waged, even though the general or larger war was won, happened after World War II. A man named Hiro Onoda a Japanese intelligence officer who was 29 years post-World War II still engaging in conflict. 
in the jungles of the Philippines. 29 years post-World War II, he still thought the war was being fought. He thought the announcement that the war had ended was a trick from America. So he kept fighting for 29 years. It took an adventurer who traveled extensively eventually into that jungled area in 1974, Norio Suzuki came across Hiro and discovered that he was still engaged in warfare and combat. And when told, the war's done, buddy, he answered, I will not quit fighting unless there is an order that relieves me of my duty. It actually took one of the Japanese commanders to find him and relieve him of his duty. And that took 29 years. Now, what's the point? Well, the point is that dark general, that prince of the power of the air, that adversary named Satan, he will never give such an order, even though the war has already been won. Did you know that? When Jesus went to the cross in the first century, when God sent his only son, it was God waging war against sin and death. And they thought that by killing the son of God, that they would have ultimately won the war. But as God allows and as God has it to be what man means for evil, God means for good. And there was a recycling and the cross, which was the greatest evil ever done, became the greatest good ever accomplished. So there are still battles taking place ultimately for the souls of men. Why? Because the devil's a liar and he's a murderer and he's been that way from the beginning. Now stop and consider what Hiro Anata said. I will not quit fighting unless there is an order that relieves me of my duty. That is the same exact attitude that every Christian should have. Because though our master and our savior won the war, we are still engaged in spiritual battles. Spiritual battles over our marriages, spiritual battles over our families, spiritual battles over our communities, spiritual battle over our nation, spiritual battle over the world. And take it from Hiro himself and let that be the attitude of your heart. We will not quit fighting unless our commander in chief, Jesus himself, relieves us of our duties here on earth. This is kind of what Paul is going to charge young Timothy with. Now, we've covered a lot of ground in the first 17 verses of 1 Timothy. We're going to look at verses 18, 19, and 20 here. I'm going to read them in their entirety, and then we're going to make our way back to verse 18 and take it slow. The word of God proclaimed. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Verse 19, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. Verse 20, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. All right, a lot there. Let's take it one verse and even one 
phrase at a time. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. Right, charge, it's a word we've already covered earlier in the epistle. It's a military term. Make no mistake, there's a lot of energy within this term. The charge, like a general charging a soldier, like a general charging an army, that which was committed to you, which we'll talk about in a second, what was committed to Timothy, Paul identifies him as a son, not biologically, but spiritually. Timothy was Paul's spiritual son. He's making investments into young Timothy's life. He brings Timothy into remembrance of prophecies that were spoken over his life. Concerning the prophecies previously, past, made concerning you. He wants Timothy to grab a hold of these prophecies, the words spoken over his life, presently, as a charge in the midst of what he was going through in this church body called Ephesus, where there were not just those that defected from the faith, there were those who were trying to infect the faith. It's one thing to leave, an entirely different thing to stay and stir up trouble and division. And Timothy is called to stand firm at the gates of the church as a gatekeeper. Every spiritual leader is tasked as a gatekeeper. I would say fathers are tasked as gatekeepers over their family, husbands, gatekeepers over their marriage. And you get the point, wherever God has placed you as a man or as a woman, you're a gatekeeper. And all of us are charged in this battle to guard the gates of our souls. Being mindful what you let into your mind. Watchful on what you let into your eyes. Pay attention to what you're letting into your ears. These are gates. And ultimately, Guard the heart above all else, for out of the heart flows you. Out of the heart flows your life. In the case of young Timothy here, these prophecies appear to be far-seeing glances into the life and the work and the ministry and the teaching of this future young Christian church leader. Here, what is being entrusted to him is doctrine, protect it. The teachings or the apostolic teachings that were laid out as the foundation for the church. For the church to grow and thrive and maintain its health and its integrity, it must be built upon the foundation of the word of God. When were these prophecies spoken over young Timothy? Many Bible scholars agree, and I would agree as well, that they were likely uttered over him at his ordination. And ordination is biblical. It's where the elders of a church body gather, pray over, and lay hands upon an appointed man in order to step into the office of pastor or elder. We did that a few weeks ago with our brother and now pastor, Terrence Sikoriak. If you missed that ceremony, I encourage you to go back and listen, not only to see the honor that was bestowed upon Terrence and his wife, Jennifer, but also to see how that type of ceremony, an ordination ceremony, should be conducted biblically where the elders use the word of God to prophesy over Terence's life. That's all we did. We took the word of God and we spoke it to him 
and we spoke it over him. And I had the honor to break down the office of pastor into three primary roles that Terrence has fulfilled. And I called him to keep fulfilling. So it was a past speaking over him, affirming what he had done. And it was a charge to keep doing it. And I said, first and foremost, here's the prophecies from the word of God. A pastor is to be a servant of the most high God. You're serving him ultimately. And as you serve him, you're serving his people. You're a servant in the house of God. You do that by maintaining holiness and humility. That is a true servant in the house of God. You are then a shepherd to the flock of God. An under shepherd, I said. An under shepherd that must be absolutely tough and yet tender and sensitive. You were doing it, keep doing it, brother. And I finally said, you are a steward of the word of God. You are a servant in the house of God. You're a shepherd of the flock of God. And you need to maintain the integrity of being a steward of the word of God. That means being accountable to and abiding in. So what Paul is saying to Timothy about the prophecies that were spoken over him to engage him into the spiritual warfare of ministry, we did a couple weeks from this stage, Terrence's way. What we did was foretell and foretell. That's prophecy in the Bible. Now, obviously, prophecy is twofold. Prophecy engages us in the word of God as God has foretold world events. And that's why the Christian must know the word of God for themselves. Because it's within the word of God that we are foretold where all of this is headed. So we fear not. We understand all of the nuances. I like to say we reverse engineer it. We have the end. I reverse engineer it and I begin with the end in mind. But prophecy is also forthtelling. If you're t- taking notes, that is the best way to categorize prophecy. Forthtelling from the word of God, foretelling from the word of God. Now, that word prophecy or prophecies over the course of abuse and misuse, people don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, right? But let me say it like this. Abuse or misuse of prophecy does not equal non-use. Just because people have abused it, they said they were speaking on behalf of the Lord, but they weren't, or they've misused it, which causes a lot of damage in the church, does not equate into non-use. In fact, it should lead every spiritual leader into proper use. Just this past week, I had somebody meet with me and bless me by speaking the word of God over my life. And the reason I received that is because it was directly from the word of God. Custom fitted to where I was, it was a blessing to receive that. Here's what I want you to get from Paul reminding Timothy about the prophecies previously spoken over his life is that receiving a word from God, here you go, will never contradict the word of God. Speaking the word of God is speaking the words from God. So when I stay in the word and I'm speaking it over your life, that is a form of prophesying a charging, if you will, 
an equipping from the word of God, an encouragement. That's why you can leave a service and you feel like the Lord spoke directly to you and it was custom fitted to your circumstances. It's because the word of God is alive, it's active, it's powerful. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now, why is he reminding him of these words spoken over his life? That by them you may wage the good warfare. Oh, now we're getting serious. By the words spoken over your life, I want you to engage in the warfare. What was the warfare of Timothy's day? Remember, they were dealing with a lot of spiritual liars and deceivers. It wasn't so much the battle that was raging outside of the church that led to persecution. I've said it before, I'll say it again, the persecution against the saints, the church, the Christian, through the ages has only caused the church to spread and grow like wildfire. However, it's not the persecution from the outside in, it's the contamination from the inside out. And this is what Timothy is guarding against. Paul actually warned this church before his departure in Acts chapter 20. Go back and read that chapter. He calls the elders of Ephesus unto himself. He says he's not gonna see them anymore. They weep over parting ways with the great apostle. And then he says, I'm warning you, they're gonna be wolves that come in amongst you. And even those that are counted amongst you, they're gonna, they're gonna rise up and they're gonna spread false doctrine like cancer. It's what he said. So Timothy, these words spoken over you from the word of God about your life and your ministry and your calling, use them to ground you, to equip you, to charge you. They're your charge, Timothy. They're your armor, Timothy. They are your weapon to pull from. Do you know how many Bible verses engage us with military language. Just a few, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses three to six, says we walk in the flesh, we know that, but we don't war in the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're mighty in God, for, for what? Pulling down strongholds. What has a stronghold on your life, your marriage? What has a stronghold on a ministry? The word of God is to pull those strongholds down. In other words, pull down the lies and replace them with truth from God's word. Pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and any high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's the word of God as our weapon that engages into that battle, bringing every thought into captivity. My thoughts, and even the thoughts that come through my cell phone screen on social media. Bring that thought into captivity. To what? To the obedience of Christ. Back to the word of God. And you be ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That's that passage. How about the proverb that says, wise counsel helps us engage in warfare. How about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul would eventually write Timothy and say, Timothy, you're going to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then he gives them this idea behind his enlistment. No one engaging in warfare gets caught up in the affairs of life. No, 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 why? Because he's obedient to his commander in chief who enlisted him in the first place. 
Now picture a soldier in the trenches, in the thick of battle, in the midst of that, taking bullets and bombs and all those things that are coming at him. Can you picture him in the midst of that, pulling out his cell phone? Just, a, just an analogy, just a figurative way to understand. And scrolling through social media and concerning himself on how many likes he got from his last post. Nobody would do that. And I don't say there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying in the midst of war, your priorities change. And things in the midst of war become very heightened and serious. And the things that you have no control over, they fall by the wayside. How about Ephesians 6? Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Paul says again to the church at Ephesus, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Taking up the whole armor of God. Why? So you can stand against the wiles, the trickeries, the schemes of the devil. Because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. He now takes us into the spiritual realm where the war is raging. You are fighting against powers and principalities and the rulers of the darkness in this age and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. And then he lists for us spiritual armament. And if you've been in church, you know the armor of God. I don't have to go through all of the armor of God. You know the armor of God, right? Right? Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, ultimately shodding your feet with the gospel of peace. Talks about the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, but I think the most important piece, because it says above all, <laughs> taking up the shield of faith. The shield of faith. What was it about the shield that had Paul say, above all, take up that shield? You know, throughout history, a lot of the ancient armies have perfected the art of war. I think of the Romans, which would have been the soldier that Paul was likely writing these pieces of weaponry as he watched a Roman, Roman soldier, perhaps. But the shield was significant. The Roman shield was larger. It was like a rectangle. And they used it, obviously, to be unified in battle. But there was a different type of shield that was manufactured by the Spartans. And the Spartan shield was circular. Went away from the box, rectangular, bulky look. They went to a circular shield. And when you discover why, they were more agile. They would carry it on their forearm. They could still hold their weapon with their right arm. But the shields were circular because they were told that they were to block the blind spots of their comrades. So while the shield was personal for them, the primary usage of the shield was to help their fellow soldier and his blind spots. And when called as one, they would lock their circular shields into like this dome shape where larger numbers and armies could not penetrate even though their small force or their unit was outnumbered. If you've seen any of the movies that have this type of 
demonstration. You know what I'm talking about. But I want to make a spiritual application about the shield of faith. When we come together as a body, as a corporate body of believers, we are to lock shields with one another. And there are people that are sitting next to you, behind you, and in front of you. They have weak spots. They have blind spots. And unless you're looking out for them, there's a very real enemy who fires fiery darts. And if I'm looking out for you, because my shield is for your weak spot and your blind spot, and the person that's next to me is looking out for me, do you know what that's called biblically? Unity. Unity in the gospel. Unity around the word of God. Unity around truth. Unity went together. You know what else? When we depart and we go back to our families and to our work weeks, some of us go at it alone. And I'm asking every soldier of Jesus Christ, when you are independent of the corporate setting, you go from unity and you need to maintain maturity because unity together, maturity went separate. Maturity on my own. If a soldier was cut off from the unit, he still had to be prepared and equipped and ready to fight the war based on what he was taught. It's maturity for the believer where I can stand alone when I'm apart from my spiritual family. And the reason why, listen to me, the reason why you're seeing soldiers getting cut off, spiritually speaking, believers getting wounded, succumbing to temptation, is because we're away from the corporate setting of unity and we're lacking maturity. And if we lack maturity when we're on our own, we are going to succumb to the temptations of the world. That's just how it goes. That is why the enemy wants to isolate us. But what can he do with a believer who knows who they are in Christ, who puts the spiritual armor on every day, who stays prayed up? The enemy will come and tempt, but your maturity in the word of God, you feeding your spirit, not your flesh, will allow you to not fall to that temptation. Now, you know me, I love these types of movies that depict battles outnumbered, like the movie 300, the one that comes and wasn't gonna fight in the first place, but decided to fight in the end because it touched his home eventually when he lost his son in battle. And, a, and that movie was The Patriot. You know, I love that movie. My favorite movie of all time is Braveheart. I've seen it a thousand times, can quote all the lines. William Wallace. Close second place would be the movie Gladiator. And I saw a scene from a pastor. Now, I don't know much about this pastor, right? So I'm not endorsing anything about his ministry. You can see that email coming. Did you know he did? I don't know anything about him. But what he says in this clip, I wholeheartedly agree with. But listen how he depicts this scene in the Gladiator and is able to make the spiritual application for the church. Check this out. Everybody's seen the movie uh, Gladiator. I remember when I saw it, the Spirit of God spoke to me in the theater and said, there come a generation where this scene you're looking at will be a reality. And it was a scene where Maximus, uh, played by Russell Crowe, is in the middle of the arena with the uh, gladiators that are in his gladiator school from North Africa. And 
he hears a voice speaking, describing what's about to happen. And these guys, there's 12 of them, are standing around looking, who am I supposed to, are we supposed to fight? There's nobody there. And then he hears, ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you a recreation of the second fall of mighty Carthage. And there on the barren plains of Sarna are the armies of Hannibal, brute barbarians and mercenaries bent on merciless destruction. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you the barbarian horde. And they extend, extends the hand, and there's Maximus. Down. He goes, well, that looks like us. He shall face off with the victorious armies of General of the Africanus Corps, Scipio Africanus. Well, right there, Maximus, who's a former general, realizes, oh boy, so we're going to face off. This is a recreation of the Hannibal's problem with Scipio. Scipio had chariots with blades that would decimate Hannibal's legions. Maximus turns to the others. He says, how many of you have served in the army? He's supposed to be a Spaniard, but he sounds like an Australian. He goes, whatever comes through those gates, we have a better chance of survival if we work together. That's when the goosebumps hit me. Whatever comes through those gates, we have a better chance of survival if we work together. The gates fly open. Chariots come rolling in this with, the, with a thunderous sound. And as they come descending upon this, this little group of, of soldiers who don't have chariots, Maximus says, come together, closer, closer, come on, closer. As they back into each other, he says, lock your shields. They lock their shields at a perfect 360 degree Roman tortoise because all of them had been in the military. And so they understood how to keep a formation in unity. And now as the chariot comes rolling up towards him to break up this unity and decimate this little group, Maximus says, hold, hold. And then he shouts, as one. And they all shout back, as one. And they lean into their shields, kaboom, and repulse the chariot. It bounces right off their shields. And the crowd goes, ooh, like that. <laughs> Maximus, like a true shepherd, says, well done. They'll be back. And then he gives a unique command. He yells out, diamond! The word diamond was a cue to tilt the shield as they were, there were these chariots coming. He caused his men to lie down under their shield and flip the chariot as it came upon them. Diamond! And boom, they drop down like that. The chariot hits the shield and they flip it. Now the chariots start flipping the crowd is actually cheering for a remnant overcoming the odds that are against them. And as it is happening, Maximus gives the command, single column, single column. Now they walked in unity, they can separate. They move into two columns. Maximus gets up on one of the horses that he just sets free from the chariot, rides behind them and starts taking them out from behind. They hardly knew what was hitting them. The crowd is up on their feet, Maximus, Maximus. And this is how they won the arena. They flipped the mob. They overturned the agenda that was against them. Even now, the church is put on display to reveal the manifold wisdom of God under the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We're on the theater display, and the principalities are observing the manifold. And the word manifold means the many facets of a diamond. And the body of Christ moving in unity as one is called to deal with whatever hell sends through those gates. And if you'll do it with maturity and unity, you will watch exploits be done 
that will cause the crowd that is gawking at you and wondering what kind of religious cult or weird thing is this, they will suddenly begin to cheer for you because they'll see the exhibition of the glory of God. Now you see why I love that clip. And obviously fell right in line with this language of warfare. The word of God, of course, being our charge into wartime. The word of God being our armor for warfare. And the word of God being our weapon of war. I remember very specifically at my wedding day, it was the rehearsal the night before. And of course, we were running through the various things that would take place during a ceremony, yet the walkthrough, the rehearsal, if you will. And we had two ministers that were engaging in the ceremony, Pastor Victor Hudson and Pastor Scott Durbin. And my wife and I uh, had the honor of being the bride and the groom. And I'll never forget it. We're talking through like, all right, they're gonna come down, they're gonna take there. And then what happens next is Pastor Vic's gonna come out and he's gonna make a few statements. And then Pastor Scott's gonna come out, he's gonna pray and like very specific, right? And then it came back to Pastor Victor Hudson, who was the minister that, in, that would come into the prisons for that five years and lead a male discipleship class. So him and I had struck up a relationship like he was uh, a, my, my mentor in essence. So we found it necessary for him to marry Sarah and I. And I'll never forget it because he was talking quick. He's like, all right, right before the vows, and he stopped and he was like, I'm gonna do something real spiritual right here. And then he kept talking about like the next things that would happen in the ceremony. And Sarah kind of looked at me and gave me a look like, I don't know what that just meant. He's gonna do something very spiritual. But we'd let it go. We forgot about it until the next day, the wedding day. And it came to that particular point in the ceremony. And he stopped. And he took out some oil. And he began to speak prophetically over my marriage. And then he asked me to anoint my wife with oil. Ladies and gentlemen, that was not part of the original plan. And if you know my bride, you better believe her eyes were this wide as I got oil on my hand. And she didn't say it, but I'm no dummy. I was reading the body language. She was basically saying to me, you better not anoint me with that oil right now. And if I could say something back, it would have been, just pretend like I'm fixing your makeup or something. And there I was anointing my wife, which in hindsight became this beautiful point of connection. But you know the words that Pastor Vic spoke over my marriage? Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon formed shall prosper. And you have no idea how many people have spoken that exact verse over my marriage. It has charged Sarah and I to understand that in the midst of this warfare, if we keep Christ at the center, if we keep his word as our charge, no weapon formed will prosper. Now, all that practically is found in verse 19. What is this weapon and this armor and this charge? Verse 19, faith and a good conscience. This is how simple this is. Having a f the faith and a good conscience, which in some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. This is amazing. Paul's going from Timothy, I charge you, engage the warfare, to the question, how do I do that? Faith and conscience, because what the heart is to the body, the conscience is to your faith. What the heart is to the body, it pumps blood throughout the body. It's your life blood. The conscience, conscience is to your faith. Faith and conscience here, 
three times are conjoined in chapter one, verse five, in chapter one, verse 19 here, in chapter three, verse 19, there's something unique about faith and conscience. Clearly, faith and conscience must be united. The faith is the word of God. The word of God in conscience is morals. A good conscience then is an anchor in troubled waters. A good conscience then is a rudder, an anchor for protection against winds and storms and a rudder for direction. How quickly does Paul go from a war analogy as far as foot soldiers are concerned, army, and now he makes his way into navy. Be a good soldier, and now he's saying, hey, you need to be a good sailor. Because if you don't have the good sailing expertise, you can end up shipwrecked. He says, some have suffered shipwreck. Well, what is that all about? Well, it was receiving bad doctrine. These individuals crashed and burned. They either heated the lighthouse, which was faith and conscience, engaging the warfare, or they hit the lighthouse. And that's really the only two results for the Christian. You're either heating the lighthouse or you're hitting the lighthouse. How dangerous is a shipwrecked faith in the grand scheme of all? Well, very dangerous. I can list for you those that have shipwrecked. But you wouldn't recognize it as shipwrecking. You wanna know why? Because we've changed the term. We've softened the blow. It's no longer called someone that's shipwrecked. We now call it someone that is deconstructing. Have you heard that Christian term? Deconstructing their faith. They're basically casting off archaic ideas. They're saying the Bible is outdated and old, right? So the Bible has to conform to the times and those that have deconstructed their faith have moved into what they call deconversion. Deconversion? Deconversion would then tell you that you had something to do with your conversion in the first place. But because you didn't have anything to do with your conversion, you can't deconvert. If you deconvert, it's evidence that you were never converted in the first place. So a safer way to talk about shipwrecking so we don't hurt anybody's feelings, we just call it deconstructing. It's an emancipation of archaic ideas. It's when the word of God is no longer the judge over you, but you become the judge over the word of God. It's when the word of God is replaced by subtle and sly ideologies and philosophies such as humanism and materialism and secularism and progressivism. And if you think for a second that those isms have not entered the church of Jesus Christ in a very damaging and dangerous way where people are shipwrecking their faith and they're bringing people with them, that's happening. The authority of the scriptures has been rejected and made to be subjective and conditional I wanna give you an example of where this can go, how dangerous shipwrecking is, not deconstructing. It's called shipwrecking. People have departed from the faith. For this person, this is how it started. Quote, our heart, reason, intelligence, and history all summon us with loud and convincing voice to the knowledge that union with Christ is absolutely necessary, that without him, we would be unable to fulfill our purpose, that without him, we would be rejected by God 
and the only, and that he on, only he can redeem us, excuse me. That's a Christian statement through and through. That's profound. You know who said it? Karl Marx penned these words as a teenager right before he went off to secular university in 1835. Karl Marx was raised in a Protestant household. Later on, his writings and ideas, atheistic, would sow ideas that would reap the death of millions. That's how they started. This is how they finished. Quote, my object in life is to dethrone God and destroy capitalism. Do you even know what Marxism is? Can you even recognize Marxist ideology if it hits you in the face? And you know what I've learned through the years? People can't. They can't even recognize what's happening around them. The greatest shipwreck of faith in the past 200 plus years was a man named Karl Marx. But he spent his life's work not just hitting the lighthouse, he spent his life's work hating the lighthouse and wanting to destroy, or ready, deconstruct or dismantle the pillars that God put in place for society, namely the family, the church, and government. All God's institutions to bring order to society. And Marxist ideology dismantles those pillars. Can you recognize Marxist ideology? Because they don't come at you saying, this is Marxism. Oh no, they come at you and say, this is progressivism. This is how we're to love our neighbor by affirming where they're at. And it's entered the church and pulpits across the land have been compromised. Let me give it to you as simple as I can to have a biblical worldview versus a Marxist worldview. A biblical worldview tells us in the word of God, humans were created, period. The origin of creation starts and ends with God. Marxist ideology says humans are creators. Humans are little gods with the ability that God gave them, but they don't recognize God, to create, which is why Marxist ideology is always man trying to make society better, but not actually calling out the ills of society, sin. No, they move to the second tenet, that humanity's problem is social, social constructs, which is the opposite of humanity's problem from a biblical worldview being sin. We gotta call it what it is. It's sin. It's a departure from God. Are you wondering why people within 24 hours, the blood had not even dried on the streets of Israel, that in America, people were taking to the streets at liberal university and protesting in favor of Hamas. Are you wondering why? Because it's Marxist ideology. What they've done is categorize the conflict into oppressor and oppressee. And Israel is the oppressor. They are the patriarch. Israel is the colonizer. Israel stole the land, occupation. And the Palestinians and the Arabs have the right to the land. And they've been oppressed by the Jews. Newsflash church, there is no people on planet earth more oppressed than the Jews. 
I'm just trying to help you understand what's happening in your world. When you see this happen, you go, what is that from? It's classical Marxism, which was pitting classes against each other, the rich versus the poor, okay? Marx believed that if he could get the proletariat to understand that they were being oppressed, they can overthrow the bourgeoisie. So it was the rich versus the poor, and it wreaked havoc because he promised them a utopia, but a utopia promise always leads to a dystopian outcome. And if you don't believe me, go to any Democratic-ran city with the promise of progressivism. It's the opposite that's occurring, but nobody wants to talk about it. No, the church has adopted this ideology, not only through 2020 into 21, where your color, which is cultural Marxism, categorized you. And if you're part of a certain color, you are immediately the oppressor or you are oppressed and nothing else matters. Facts don't matter, data doesn't matter, circumstances don't matter, personal responsibility doesn't matter. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Marxism. And the reason I'm touching on it, you're probably, why are you touching on it? Because you can't recognize it. And it's caused the most damage to the church of Jesus Christ over the past several years. And the believer is supposed to build their life on the rock. The final solution is humanity's hope, and we know it's the resurrection of Christ. Marxist worldview says humanity's hope is revolution of man. Overthrow the power structures. America is racist. Overthrow the institution. That's what they want you to believe. And we're watching our freedoms and our liberties erode because of Marxist, godless ideology has entered the church of Jesus Christ. The world does not need more revolutions of men. No, the world needs more revelation of Christ. This is the answer. The answer is that the only hope to cure the sin-sick soul is Jesus Christ. And when I say revelation of Christ, I'm talking about the incarnation of Christ, when God revealed himself to humanity. I'm talking about the humiliation of Christ, as my brother Nick Johnson beautifully taught this past Thursday. I'm talking about the crucifixion of Christ, that God would divinely condescend and allow sinful hands to pin him to a cross to redeem those same sinful hands. I'm talking about the resurrection of Christ. I'm talking about the only hope on this side of heaven, the only solve to sin, the only source of hope. It's the rock that the church needs to be built upon, unwilling to move, immovable in times where everything is shifting. And if you don't know what's happening, God is shaking the world. And he's doing that because there's only one thing within the world that cannot be shaken, and it's his church. Everything else is going to be rattled and purged away. Or some have built their life on the sand. Jesus said, you build your life on the sand, storms come, and that foundation cannot stand. Interestingly, when you see churches, ministers, Christians who have built their life on sand, the person who builds on sand will likely also have their head in the sand and they will wanna turn away from everything I just got done sharing today. That's the interesting dichotomy. By default, a sandcastle cannot stand and by default, even the wind is strong enough to topple a sandcastle 
Or at least that's what Paul said to the church at Ephesus. Again, chapter four, verses 14 and 15, speaking about the gifts that God gave to the church, right? Including prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastor, teachers, the offices to communicate God's word. The foundation of the church was built upon apostles and prophets. That foundation cannot change. So we pull from that foundation because we're not laying a new foundation. We're pulling from the foundation previously laid. And we speak from God's word to the church of Jesus Christ, encouraging every believer to build their life on the rock. And then of course the enemy comes in and he adds all of these anti-biblical ideologies and philosophies that sound cute. They tickle the ear. They sound nice. The virtue signaling will get you to think, yeah, that, that, that does sound, we should, yeah, we should support that. But there's no death, which is why Paul said that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. What language? But speaking the truth in love which causes us to grow up in all things into him who is the head. How does the body mature? Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love and leaving the outcome to the Lord. We should be more concerned about people's eternal fate than their temporal feelings. Gospel truth is offensive. It should be. It's offensive to my, my very being, my flesh, my selfishness. And yet, it's only the truth of the gospel that is redemptive. And that's why the church leads by speaking the truth in love. Now, finally, here's your case study. Paul ends by calling out names. How judgmental of him. How insensitive. Shouldn't he just love his neighbor? Shouldn't he have accepted Hymenaeus and Alexander as they were? Can't we all just get along? No, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander? Just two, two of many, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, question, isn't the whole point of this thing to deliver people from Satan? Then why is Paul delivering people to Satan? You wanna know why? because the heart behind the apostle, he was delivering these guys to the domain of the devil. He was excommunicating them from the church, a place where truth lives. And he knew that if they're gonna live on lies, he's going to excommunicate them to the domain where lies thrive. But Paul's heart behind it was pushing them out so as to cause them to be burnt by the way of the world and hopefully return but he knew they could not stay and pollute the purity of the work of God. The excommunication was a purging, not a punishing. The ultimate hope is that they are figuratively burned in order that they return, burned to learn. He said this same exact line to the church in Corinth within that first epistle he wrote them, chapter five, he said this, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. There was sexual immorality in the church. And Paul was like, get them out. 
deliver them unto the devil himself. Why? For the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart was he would be released to the world and that God would be able to redeem him and bring him back. But for, for, for the church to allow them to stay is to bring impurity in. And again, when you, when you have a culture like this that stays as close to the word of God as possible, you are gonna be called judgmental and harsh and less than loving. When in reality, it's the opposite of all those things. You're being discerning. You are being utmost in your loving. See, waging the good war is the posture that keeps the church pure. What keeps the church pure? Waging the war. What keeps the Christian pure? Engaging in the battle. Understanding what we're up against. According to Paul's charge to Timothy, he wanted him to remember, newsflash, stop looking at the media. The Lord Most High has already won the war. What's happening is there are battles that are raging for the souls of men, but you have everything you need to engage those battles. The Word of God is your charge. The Word of God is your armor. Put it on. The Word of God is your weapon. Learn how to wield it. And ultimately, we understand unity when together, maturity when separate, unity in the gospel, maturity in the gospel, unity corporately, maturity when I'm by myself, together, moving as a unit. This is how you wage war within a world at war. Dear church, this is your charge. And since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it. By God's grace, let's do it. Let me pray. So Father in heaven, we commit this message to you that you would seal it upon our hearts, our minds, that we would understand the charge, the orders to engage the war, to understand that this is a battle for the souls of men. Would we lead with your gospel? Would you unify your church around truth? And would you give us the maturity to stand in these crazy days? Would you be with the people in the Middle East on both sides of the equation? Would you call people unto yourself? Would you bring comfort in the midst of the pain and the agony and the horror and the terror? But we, according to your word, we stick to the script. We stick to the scriptures. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We know the stage is being set for your eventual return. We wait with expectation. So use us in this place for your glory, for the cause of Christ. Amen.